Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm well. It's it's a it's a dark day in Cleveland, but uh, I'm uh, I'm here nonetheless. Yes, we'll try to put that behind us and uh, and, and get on with the the, the weekend news. But yes, I too am am mourning the uh, the the end of perhaps an era. But anyway, that'd be for another podcast. So, you know, I thought we'd start once again with trade. Uh, this week, the G7 countries, which are the world's seven largest developed democratic economies, uh, are meeting in Quebec, Canada. Now, uh, the mood was understandably tense given President Trump's um, cavalier use, I'd call it, of a highly questionable national security trade law provision to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. And he's using that because under that provision, he doesn't need congressional approval to put these tariffs in place. Now, just prior to the meeting, the president suggested that Russia be admitted to the group uh, or or rather be readmitted to the group. And it was it was a part of that when it was called the G8 from 1997 until 2014, when its membership was suspended due to its unlawful annexation of Crimea. Now, President Trump's push for these tariffs, which we've been talking about for a while, and his clear lack of interest in multilateral diplomacy. I think they've been consistent themes of his presidency, and it's something that a lot of people, including me, believe is, you know, potentially weakening the international uh, system uh, economically and also in terms of security, perhaps. And, And this, of course, is something that, you know, we have painstakingly built up over the last, well, I guess, 70 plus years. And I would argue that it's been an extremely good thing, both for prosperity and for peace. And so I think there's a legitimate concern there. But of course, the main concern now seems to be, well, the business community has been making clear its objections uh, to, to what the president's doing. And I think Republicans in Congress are finally starting to push back, you know, at least a little bit. Uh, Republican Senator Bob Corker introduced legislation that would actually require that the president get congressional approval when he invokes this national security provision for raising tariffs. And, you know, he did this despite President Trump personally asking him not to do it. And I don't think this is I think this is unlikely to become law, but at least it's a small sign of uh, a little bit of congressional backbone on the trade issue. And, and so at least that's a that's a small positive here. So, Jay, well, what's your take on all this? Well, you know, I mean, you and I are, are really uh, pretty much uh, on the same camp when it comes to trade issues. Um, and that, that probably disappoints more of your fans than mine, I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I look, I, I think you're you're exactly right. Uh a strong international trade system has uh, benefited the United States tremendously. I know though there are all those who will argue that uh, international trade has has hurt our industries. Uh, I, you know, the counter argument that you and I have, have both made, and I think it's the correct one, is uh, it, it's so much of of the change that we've seen in in American industry from that golden age of the 1950s, 1960s, uh, relates to sort of a the peculiar historical things that were going on at that time. Uh, technological advances, and and now the technological advances that have uh, made you know human labor less important in those kind of manufacturing industries. Uh, you know, so all all that said, I mean, I look, I, I'm I'm absolutely with you uh, on um, on that we we ought not to be imposing tariffs, especially on our friends. Uh, that said, there there has been some conversation uh, that I understand took place uh, at at the G7. Uh, between uh, Trump and um, uh, well, not uh, Macron, the um, uh, Trudeau, uh, regarding you know NAFTA renegotiation, uh, and and to me this still seems. I mean, I'm still of the of the the mind that you know maybe what Trump is doing is he is being this extreme Trumpian sort of character, uh, you know, and and throwing out these these crazy trade war type tariff uh, things as negotiating points. Which he will then give away uh, for some, you know, more modest adjustment uh, to, to NAFTA or the the current situation. Uh, and the same goes. I think it's interesting. Uh, word came that the Chinese have, um, 
in response to Trump's tariff proposals, which would go actually into effect next week on the 15th, I believe, uh, have have sort of floated the counter proposal uh, where they would, uh, you know, guarantee that they would buy, um, I want to say it was something like 70 billion. So yeah, that, that number sounds. Uh, that's yeah. the numbers that sticks out. I apologize if I'm incorrect on that, uh, of, of products from the U.S., uh, which would um, uh, cut into the, the trade deficit. Um, uh, if, if you're one of the people who believes that the, the trade deficit is in and of itself a problem, um, I'm not necessarily sure I'm, that all trade deficits are always a problem. Uh, but uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just I'm looking at this in two ways. In, in one um, one way, I, he's certainly not saying the things that I would like him to say. Uh, but secondly, he, he does seem to be getting some results. At least we don't we don't know yet where it's going to end up. Well, well, let's uh, let's so say we, this. Not, I mean, it could it could end up in a trade war, and that would be terrible. Well, uh, or sure. it could end up in the moderate, modest, uh, sort of redrafting of some, of some things, which would be not so bad. No, I I understand. We'll, we'll actually talk about. I think we're going to talk about this in our uh, our midweek show because you know, a number of listeners have suggested that you're you're kind of making this sort of ridiculous Trump's playing three dimensional chess sort of thing, uh, but. But I, I understand your point is that, you know, clearly it seems like the president is playing chicken on this and the results of chicken are either, you know, a, a win for you or a disaster. And uh, that's why I called it a very cavalier attitude. So I, as I understand it, you're not you're not trying to be a Trump apologist here. You're just trying to say, well, perhaps this will work. We don't really know yet. Exactly. Yeah. But you recognize the downside. Again, it's, not, it's not the. Um, and again, I'll say that I've said this the past couple weeks and I'll say it again, the attitude that we take in these negotiations, it's one thing to have that attitude, uh, when you're talking to Kim Jong-un, uh, the, you know, my way or the highway, tough guy playing chicken, uh, uh, sort of economic brinksmanship. Um, and it's maybe even something to take, uh, adopt more of that attitude when you're dealing with a regime like China. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem the, the, the sensible you know, way to, to deal with, with the, the Canadians. Well, and also, you know, that, that issue about multilateral versus bilateral diplomacy. In fact, even Larry Kudlow, his uh, uh, econ- chief economic advisor, said, you know, the president just doesn't like the multilateral stuff. He wants to bilateral. And when you think about it in terms of maybe how he's used to dealing with people and that that makes sense. But again, it's it's very clear to me as as a student of this for a long time that we've moved into this multilateral world and you, we can be a lot more effective in the long run. But of course, it takes a lot more patience and you have to be willing to compromise and patience and compromise are not two prominent parts of the Trumpian playbook, certainly. Yeah, well, you know, we've been in this uh, essentially, um, you know, in terms of, of trade and economics globally, we've been in this multilateral uh, uh, situation since 1947, right? I mean, we when we created there was the Bretton Woods Agreement that created the the GATT and uh, a lot of these these international institutions uh, for for you know, regulating trade uh, throughout, you know, the civilized world and kind of rebuilding after World War II. So, you know, this is, this isn't something brand new. Right. Um, you know, but it's brand and, new to uh, him. Yeah. And, and again, sort of the, the um, uh, WTO, again, that's, that's nothing that is, is brand new. Uh, this is, this has been out there, you know, decades. Um, so you know, I think you know maybe it is just he's looking at this as a different way that he thinks he can cut cut better deals privately uh, than he can working through the bigger system. Um, and in some cases, look, I think you can make the argument the bigger system doesn't work great uh, when you're talking about uh, again someone like China and the intellectual property issue. Um, well, and I, and I, I would yeah, and know, I would so argue. I think I think that's that's again maybe you've got to step up and. And and go into that kind of brinksmanship mode. Uh, again, I see it much less so when you're talking about uh, proposing tariffs, which seem uh, by all, and you know, and again, maybe he's playing three-dimensional chess. Maybe he's not. I, I don't know. Um, there there could be, <laughs> you know, there's there's also a bunch of other uh, possibilities, and that is, uh, no, he is just uh, spouting this stuff off, but the. Uh, uh, the Chinese maybe are, are reacting as if they think he's playing three-dimensional chess. Uh, it could be, you know, Wilbur Ross has, has, you know, sold Trump on this sort of protectionist uh, strategy. 
um, which is, uh, again, sort of anathema to, uh, you know, typical conservative Republican pro-business uh, stance on these things. Um, but but uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And, you know, I, and the issue of readmitting Russia, I think that that's just an awful idea, in part because Russia, you know, well, the G7 is a collection of high income democracies. And, and number one, Russia is not really high income. Uh, number two, Russia is not a democracy. Uh, you know, if you take a look at, for instance, the the Freedom House rankings, uh, and that's kind of I think one of the most you know standard ones. You, you look at the G7 members, and they're like all in the upper 80s to 90s. That's on a zero to 100 scale for freedom. Russia is uh, something like uh, I think in 20 is the, the last uh, 20 out of 100, just over China at like 14. So if we're going to expand the G7 to a G8, I, we'd, we'd want to admit a country more like India, which is, you know, the seventh largest economy in the world and far, far more free than, uh, you know, than, than Russia, certainly. And so I, I don't know exactly what Trump is thinking here, but uh, maybe he's just being provocative for the sake of being provocative. But of course, this is, you know, another another way where people who think that there are some ties here say, well, why, what's he doing here? He's just not doing right. himself any favors here. Now, I, I don't know if that's really the case. I think it's more the case if he thinks of Russia as Russia was as the Soviet Union, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that sort of thing. But again, the world has changed. And sure, Russia is a, a large economy. It's the 11th largest economy in the world, you know, but but there are, you know, there, Brazil has a larger economy and they're a lot more free. India does, you know, so I just think this is really backwards thinking. My, my sense on on Trump and Russia, I, I think could be one of two things. Firstly, I, I don't get why he would just go and make that sort of statement. Uh, again, sort of shouting, shouting it over the uh, uh, helicopter blades as he did was <laughs> made it made even worse. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I think look, if we've got a tool for dealing with uh, Russian expansionism, uh, readmission uh, to the to the G7 would would be one of those tools. And if you want to make statements about, uh, we'd be happy to see the Russians back as soon as they start. Uh, abiding by the norms that that we would expect of a a, a Western democracy, and, and including, uh, you know, getting out of uh, the the Crimea, um, uh, you know, having free and fair elections, yada yada, all all that sort of stuff. I, you know, that might be a good statement to make. Um, the other thing I think I, I don't I, I disagree with you in saying that that Trump maybe sees the the uh, Russia as you know the Soviet Union of the 1970s. Um, but but I think he sees them as a counterweight uh, to, for example, the Chinese mm, okay. uh, or the North. And I, I think I think sometimes in, in his and again I I can't tell what's really in his mind. But uh, if you look at the things he said and done, and and there is sort of a consistency in that. Um, and, and I'll tell you, this isn't this isn't inconsistent. This is also consistent with the um, the Obama uh, Clinton you know reset uh, was that. You know, listen. Let's let's get uh, the Russians on board, uh, at least not as a um, um, you know competitor uh, uh, opponent, but but you know that 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 idea of if we have a, a a better relationship with the Russians, that gives us more leverage with uh, you know, for example, the Chinese and say the Iranians and, and other other countries. So I think there there and and I don't want to say that there's nothing to that idea. Um, but the way he he presents it is, hey, just let's let's just bring Russia back in. Uh, that's that's problematic. And then just for the the sheer political optics of the thing, um, I, I can't imagine why President Trump would say anything nice about Russia. I mean, if I were if I were him, I would be denouncing the Russians, you know, every every moment I could. Well, yeah, I've said this before. I'll say it again before we move on. But I think a lot of people are overthinking this. I think he's a I think he's an old guy who's never done a whole lot of thinking about this and still doesn't. He's incredibly incurious. He said on many occasions that he's not interested in you know in in studying up and learning about this stuff. He goes with his gut, and so I just think uh, it, it's just as simple as to say that uh, he just doesn't know much and doesn't care about knowing much and just goes with what he you know came up learning haphazardly and from occasional you know fox and friends episodes and and that's the leader of the free world folks uh there you go uh, anyway uh, let's move on to domestic policy you know 
a Supreme Court this week issued, I'd say maybe its most eagerly awaited ruling of the term in the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And just for listeners who need a little uh, refresher on that, that's the one involving a baker who was found to be in violation of the Colorado civil rights law after refusing to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Now, the split on the court's decision, seven to two for the baker, that that surprised uh, a number of folks and led some people, including Donald Trump Jr., to call this a major victory for the right. But most everyone who actually read the decision concluded that it was an extremely narrow ruling. And some people understand what narrow means, like Donald Trump Jr., apparently, meaning that it doesn't broadly apply and that the court actually declined to address the fundamental free expression issue. And Justice Kennedy's majority opinion focused instead on uh, what the court saw as bias toward the baker's religion in the review of the claim against him by the Civil Rights Board. Um, For instance, in his decision, Kennedy writes, the outcome of cases like this and other circumstances must await further elaboration in the courts, all in the context of recognizing that these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. So, Jay, you're our legal expert. What do you think about this decision? Well, you know, I, I think the first uh, thing I'd say, and this is this is exactly the, the same thing I said when uh, Obergefell was, was decided. Uh, one is, is Anthony Kennedy's world. We all just live in it. Yeah. Um, and, and the second is, this is, I think, the right uh, result, but the wrong way of getting there. Um, hmm, okay. And, 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 you know, here's, well, here's the problem. And this is, this is exactly, and, and I want to be charitable to Anthony Kennedy, who, look, he's, he's on the Supreme Court. He's been on the Supreme Court for 40-ish years. It's been a right? long time, yeah. No, 30, 30, I think like 35, maybe. Um, longer than I have. Um, so, you know, look. Obviously, he he deserves some deference. But if you read if you read the, the his various decisions on so many of these issues, it's really difficult to find a a clear guiding legal principle of here's what we're doing and why. Uh, it, it very much seems to be a case by case of this is the way I feel like this ought to go. Um, and and the the problem is that when you have a decision like uh, a Obergefell and Kennedy in that decision said, look, hey, I'm not saying uh, that uh, this is going to be any, um, you know, I, I can't see how this would be any problem for anyone else down the road. Um, and again, wasn't thinking about uh, uh, cake bakers apparently. Uh, but now, you know, you've got to deal with that. Um, that sort of anomaly of not not announcing like a real constitutional um, uh, legal principle that 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 can be guided and relied upon, but now we're in this funny case by case situation of well, yeah, uh, he's got a, a religious liberty right here, and we're not really going to. But the uh, Civil Rights Commission um, uh, acted badly, essentially, so we're going to avoid the prosecution, um, and and. You know, I again. I, so here, here's the thing. As let me put, let's put it this way: as a as a Burkean, um, you know, I think that's that's great. That's that's sort of taking that case by case traditional kind of, yeah. Look, come on, let's cut this guy some slack, um, and that makes sense. But but if and and if this was a the local trial court doing this, you know, sort of settling this. Ah, come on, look, let's you know get rid of this. Um, I think that makes sense. But when you're on the Supreme Court and you're pronouncing uh, sort of here is the big legal principles that that uh, this is how we you know view the Constitution, um, uh, you know the problem is you, what I'm trying to say is you start down that road of of sort of unprincipled decisions, it's going to lead to more unprincipled decisions to sort of to sort of make up for the results that you didn't intend or didn't see. Well, I understand what you're saying. I'll, I'll take issue with the idea that this is an unprincipled decision. I think it was uh, perhaps not a courageous decision well, because— I, I, Yeah, there's, there's a principle there, but it just wasn't really the principle that was at issue in the yeah, case. Exactly. And so I think, you know, this was inevitable based on, you know, previous precedent in the sense that once you say that there is a fundamental equal protection right uh, for— same-sex couples, and I believe that was a correct decision, then you end up with some difficult cases where that fundamental right 
goes up against other fundamental rights like freaks. And this this is difficult stuff. And the court clearly took the easy way out on this. I, I, I wish, well, maybe I don't wish they hadn't given what I think might have happened if they if they hadn't. And maybe this was in part just so they could get the largest majority as possible. But, you know, one thing I, I well, want... And I think, there's, I think there's something to that, too, um, in that, because uh, you know, the court, I think, serves another function. And especially, I, I think, uh, Roberts, and I don't, this is, this is nothing that I know, uh, this is just my my sense is that as chief justice, you wouldn't want two five four decisions coming on on these kind of issues, and and there is there is an interest in finding consensus, even if that consensus means you're dodging the bigger issue. So I get that. Um, but at some there's, point there's some they're going to have to. But yes, at some point they have to face this bigger issue because there will be a case where the the civil rights commission or whatnot does not seem to be arguably fairly biased and then so that's why i said you know that they clearly punted this decision and that is exactly I mean, this, this is sort thing. of the case of, of say you know if you were to, to uh, analogize it to a criminal case which is i suppose was quasi-criminal it it's almost as like uh look here you're being charged with this crime we don't know whether the you know you the the uh, uh statute is constitutional or not that you're being charged under uh, but you know the prosecutor uh, buried evidence, uh, uh, so you know, so you know, you're getting, you're walking on that, on that. It's you know, I don't want to say technicality, but it, it's it's fact specific. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I thought what was most interesting, maybe at least for me, was the concurrence written by uh, Justices uh, Gorsuch and Thomas, and and folks who don't know, in that they, I'll try to summarize it as best as I can. They argued essentially that the baker in this case is an artist, uh, an artist who has sincerely held religious beliefs, and that his creation of a wedding cake, even one that doesn't have any specific reference to same-sex marriage, is in essence uh, compelled symbolic speech, and therefore a law requiring that he engage in that compelled symbolic speech is not constitutional. And in this in this concurrence, they pointed out the, the they argued for the special nature of wedding cakes, that they they symbolize something in a way that if you're say the caterer providing the the chicken or beef option is not really you know, the same sort of level basically, or the people renting the hall or something like that. And I, I thought it was an interesting argument. And I got to say, I am, you know, I am a huge proponent of LGBTQ rights, but I am, I, I found a lot in that concurrence that made sense to me. And this is, again, one of these situations where I feel like, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure if I would, if I would have signed on to that, but there's a lot worth considering. And this is another situation where I feel that sometimes my policy preferences push up against my understanding of the constitution. And that's, you know, that's a difficult situation for, for me to be in certainly. So no, well, uh, Again, Watts, well, that's another big sign of growth for you there. See, I don't the... think it's – you keep on calling it growth, but I think I've been pretty consistent No, I, but in no that, I, I'm, so. I'm kidding. I'm kidding because I – yes, I've, I've, I've known your fears. But um, no, I think you're right in that, in that the current concurrence, there there is uh, a principle out there uh, that they float. And, and that principle is that, uh, look, uh, it's one thing to say uh, I am denying service to someone on the basis of their uh, their sexual orientation. Uh, that is is prohibited under the statute, uh, and and that you, you can't do it. But it's another thing to say that I am being <clears throat> compelled uh, to celebrate something that I oppose religiously. And, and the facts in this this case were the the baker had said, look if. You know, if you want a birthday cake, I'll get your birthday cake. If you want some muffins, I'll sell you some muffins. You know, there there wasn't there wasn't a denial of service based on 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 because you're homosexual. I'm not going to to serve you anything. It's just I'm not going to uh, sort of put my time, talents, and and sort of speech, uh, if you will, into celebrating something that that uh, my religion uh, says is is sinful. And and I do think that's that is a that's a line that. That one can follow. Now that there'd have to be other cases, you know that, you know what happens when you have the florist. Well, is that the same thing as the wedding wedding cake uh, baker? And again, it's something else. I think if the, you know, if a couple comes and they, you know, they buy a cake off the shelf, uh, again, story. that's not 
a different story. And this is Uh, not, and we should say that this is, you know, for people who have never kind of worked with a wedding cake type of person, I mean, this is as described in, in, I believe, the the concurrence. This is a serious kind of thing where he really sits down and puts a lot of time and effort into this sort of thing. And not only that, but there's no question that this guy is incredibly sincere in his religious convictions here. And that's, that goes back years and types of how he runs his business. And that's the guy won't even do Halloween stuff because he feels it goes against his religious beliefs in some way. So that's why I think this is a very limited sort of thing. And again, I, I feel uncomfortable. It seems to me that these are two very important core fundamental, you know, rights that are in conflict. And these are difficult cases, you know, and that's why I, I at least, I don't know if I entirely agree with, with Gorsuch and Thomas, but I give them credit for at least being courageous enough to take a position as opposed to Kennedy, who just decided, well, we'll just talk about civility or something like that. When he could have done that, well, exactly, yeah. but still yeah. ruled on the fundamental uh, issue there. And you know, one thing, before we move on, I wanted to talk about just briefly. Somebody uh, posted on, I think it was it was maybe Dave, a uh, longtime listener, who posted and asked about different level of the levels of classifications and the level of scrutiny that the court brings to that. And uh, you know, because right now the question is, well, what is you know how does the court view? sexual orientation and that and 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 that as as a right and there are these different levels jay as i'm sure you know right that i do know if the, if a if a classification is called suspect then the court applies something called strict scrutiny which means that there needs to be an incredibly good reason to discriminate based on that it's not just a well it seems like a good idea i mean there needs to be some incredibly yeah. compelling government interest right and yes. now that is basically as i understand it that tends to apply definitely to race and also to a certain extent to gender, right? In some cases. I mean, in some cases, there's gender cases that are intermediate scrutiny where I, I mean, there was a case that had to do with like firefighters or something like that. And, you know, and it's one of those, um, you know, is it a barrier to say you have to be able to carry this much? And is that discriminatory as applied to women? And the court said, well, no, it's not because that's part of the job. You got to be able to haul somebody out of a burning building if you're going to be a firefighter. Um, and that was sort of an intermediate scrutiny. And then then the the, the easiest uh, uh, is is sort of this rational basis test is as long as uh, there is some rational basis uh, and, and rational is, is defined you know, really pretty, pretty broadly. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't have to be a good idea. It just has to be an idea. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, then it's constitutional. And and I mean that that and, and and I think you're right that that we really haven't had a a case that defines uh, homosexuality as uh, falling in, into a particular class. Obergefell, um, because again was was decided, and, and I hope I don't mess this up. Um, more on equal protection grounds as opposed to uh, 14th Amendment substantive due process grounds. And again, it's it's a little difficult to tell because the Kennedy decision there was all just kind of a, you know, well, because I think this is how it ought to go. and we we should point out that a lot of this stuff tends to be gray. I mean, this idea of, you know, it's not like there are these set. It's not like they say this is strict scrutiny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when we look at kind of the history of what determines classification, I mean, we can pull out certain common characteristics. Like if a group, if there's a history of discrimination against a group, if there is some sort of what's called immutable distinguishing characteristic of that group, uh, the level of political power a group has sometimes can, can come there into it. A, a discreet and insular minority. Caroline Products footnote, footnote number 12. There you go. So, you know, this, this evolves over time. And certainly I would argue that as our understanding of uh, the biological determinants and other things involving uh, uh, homosexuality have evolved and our understanding of, of sexuality in general, we've seen these changes. And I think that's been uh, a totally understandable and correct correct sort of way of, of doing this without violating the, the spirit or, or the letter of the Constitution. Yeah. Well, and, and again, though, I think going back to the um, the concurrence, and, and I think this is this is good. I think there is a a, a line that can be drawn in terms of um, it's one thing, um, you know, say, you know, again, say the, the local uh, Satanist cult or something goes to Masterpiece uh, Bakery and wants a, a cake for their newly installed president. And you know, we'd like it to read, uh, congratulations, Bob, hail Satan. Um, 
I think he would be certainly within his rights to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and that's that's the same sort of <clears throat> thing. And I guess I guess then the secondary question that comes up is, well, can a celebration of of gay marriage, which is different than just service to to homosexuals, uh, are, are there two different standards there? And I think that's a question that we're going to that's coming. And, and that that I think that's an important distinction, one I think that got lost in a lot of the coverage. It's not simply a denial of service type of situation. It's when there is that personal involvement. Yeah, because so, because to be clear, yeah, denial of service uh, in and of itself, I think, you know, you it's it's not unconstitutional, so to speak, but it's it's something that can be clearly prohibited by statute like they have in Colorado and plenty of other places. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You know, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. We have four new Patreon sustaining monthly supporters. Uh, let's see, Miguel, Jacob, Brian, and Alex. So thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate that. Um, also, Patreon supporters Dan and Mike doubled their previous monthly pledges. Um, Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great week for that, you know. Um, now, Miguel wrote, The Trump era highlighted my political ignorance, and though I wanted to learn much more, political news is so patronizing and off-putting to me. Not so with you guys. Your podcast helped me further crystallize my own ideologies without the usual bickering that gives me political agita. As a newly discovered social liberal with severe progressive leanings, I'm usually about 85% Mike, 15% Jay. <laughs> that sounds about right, I'd say. Uh, ultimately, making both of your voices essential to understanding myself. Thank you for I, all I will, you do. I'll take the 15%. That's take fine. what you can get, Jay, absolutely. Um, Alex also wrote in, uh, she wrote, uh, uh, thank you so much for putting together your show. I recently decided to take a more active role in learning about American politics and keeping up with current events. And your show has been very informative and fun. Well, we try to keep it fun, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Mike had this message for us. Hey, guys, I just upped my pledge here on Patreon. It's really valuable to have some very civil debate like yours available to everyone. It has helped me a lot in understanding American politics as a person who lives in Mexico. I always find the arguments on both sides are making to be compelling and valuable. I hope this helps you to continue your great work. Keep it up. Well, thank, thank you, you very Mike. much. Yeah. And finally, there's Steve, who made an extremely generous sustaining monthly support pledge through PayPal. Thank you, Steve. We really do uh, appreciate that. And just, just so you know, Steve and everyone who's a PayPal supporter, uh, when you uh, send a pledge through PayPal, there's not like an automatic way that it generates a, a, a thank you response with the links to the special supporters only exclusive after show politics guys after dark thing. So if you didn't get that, Steve and anyone else, let me know, just, you know, email Mike at politicsguys.com and I'll send that out to you again. And speaking of that supporters exclusive show on our last one, Jay and I talked about the Roseanne Barr, Samantha B thing, uh, double standards for conservatives, uh, the future of the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes, you heard that right, of all yeah, things. Yeah, it tends to be more like cultural commentary as opposed to so much, I guess, news political, right? Yeah, we can put it in That's a little bit. That's what it bit. seems yeah. to fall into And so then far. there's some weird stuff. I talked about that kind of, you know, uh, science experiment type of thing I did in my garage. It actually worked out pretty well. So yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun. And and again, so if you want to get access to that, uh, or if you don't, and you just uh, want to support the show, you know how to do it, right? Uh, politicsguys.com slash support, or you can go just right to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links. Thanks so much, everyone. We really do appreciate it. Okay, moving on to our next story. Late this week, the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives managed to hold off a push by GOP moderates. Yes, that's the thing, to force a vote on allowing dreamers to stay in the country. You know, while there's no deal in place yet, uh, these moderates and the kind of Freedom Caucus hardliners apparently found enough common ground to make a deal at least a possibility. Though Republicans who are sort of leading this push for a discharge petition to move legislation to the floor, they say they have the 218 votes they need and that they will make good on their threat if there isn't an agreement by Tuesday, just a few days from now. So, Jay, what do you think? Will your party get its act together enough to keep this discharge petition from happening? I I hope so. I, I you know, look, I've been one and I, I probably am, am, you know, certainly not orthodox on this uh, with a lot of other Republicans in that. Uh, we ought to take some votes. Uh, I, I think it would be beneficial 
uh, to take some votes. Um, particularly if, if you're looking strategically at the House races that you want to win, have to win, uh, those are districts that, uh, you know, Republican districts that, that uh, President uh, Trump is not necessarily popular in. Uh, and I think those are those are districts where you can make the 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 really smart you know policy choice and say, look, uh, we need to do something about the dreamers just from a uh, moral, humane uh, uh, you know standpoint. Um, but we also need to do something about uh, illegal immigration going forward. And and I think um, uh, you know if you if you look at the you know proposals or the the, the polls. Uh, you know, the, the idea of dreamers, you know, pull very, very high. Uh, and even among the same the same polling group, you'll say people say, yeah, they really support these people who were brought here. Uh, they didn't have any choice in the matter as as kids. They've lived here as Amer- as Americans all their life. They are. Uh, uh, but for uh, uh, the citizenship uh, as American as, as any kid born here in, in America, um, uh, the, you know, there ought to be a, a path to citizenship or at least a, you know, not making these these kids illegal. Um, I think that's that's completely rational. And, and again, but the same people also say, yeah, we, we shouldn't have people continuing to cross illegally. So, you know, the, the, the proposal so far has been, you know, fund a wall and, and you'll get this. And, and the Democrats have balked at that. Um, I, I think it's I think it would benefit Republicans. Uh, to be able to take a vote on this, um, up, 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 up or down, and, and look, those, those, uh, and I'm thinking this is purely from a strategic point. Uh, if I'm just talk, thinking strategically, Machiavellian, um, those, those uh, members, Freedom Caucus folks, uh, where you are in strong red districts, uh, they can feel free to vote against it. I mean, it, it helps, it helps everybody. Well, the, uh, I, but clearly Paul Ryan and the leadership have looked at this and come to, uh, for whatever reason, right? They've come to a different conclusion. And, and right. I should point out that and this he, I'm is— sure, I'm sure he's got a whole lot more data than, than what I do. Well, you know, but, I should point out that this is a this is pretty standard operating procedure for both Democrats and, and Republicans. In in political science, we have this concept, of, this term called the policy window, which is basically the time where there's this opportunity to enact policy. And typically, if we'd say that the policy window closes the roughly six to eight months before uh, an election, and that's just because the leadership tends not to want to force anyone to make tough votes, whether it's, you know, votes that might hurt them in primary challenges or, or in other ways. And so it generally doesn't happen. So this is not an unusual thing. In fact, well, what, so, but here's the thing, but to me, it made sense. I, I can see that delaying of not wanting the votes before primaries. And, but, and you know, we're still, well, we're, we're still into, you know, part of, part of primary season, certainly, but, but I think, well, I don't, I don't actually know. Like you said, Paul Ryan has, has a lot more data uh, information than, than, than you or I do certainly. And, I would think that it might be helpful, but given the, again, this is another issue where when you have a small coalition like the Freedom Caucus that is so influential because of, you know, the divisions in the House, they can exercise an outsized amount of power, especially since they seem to have sort of the sympathy of the administration, and they certainly seem to have the sympathy of a lot of the conservative media and so forth, and that matters a lot. Yeah. Um, although I, I would also say, though, that, that Paul Ryan and the establishment, there is an interest in avoiding a discharge position, a petition if those votes are actually there, just because what what that signals, um, it, it is that the, the inmates are running the asylum. Um, so I think in any any leadership, um, uh, you know, is going to, to do whatever they can to prevent something like a discharge petition. Uh, from happening again, just because what it points out is you're not really in charge. Well, you know, I think you can argue that to a certain extent, the the Freedom Caucus inmates have been running the asylum. I mean, they pushed out John Boehner, you know, and and they were the basically they said Paul Ryan was the only person that they were comfortable with. That you know, they were certainly the main deal brokers uh, in that sort of thing. Well, no, it's one it's one thing to be a, a deal broker within your caucus in terms of picking leadership. 
and it's something else to, yeah, okay. to then, yeah. then have that leadership. Because, uh, again, most of the folks supporting the discharge petition are Democrats. That's true, obviously. Right? All, yeah. the, all the Democrats, I think it's like all but maybe like a handful or something. So a couple dozen Republicans, just yeah. Because, you know, just because, hey, uh, you know, we're the opposition. Uh, that's that's the bigger the bigger danger. It, it's one of those where you get into a situation where you can't count on your own party or your own caucus to deliver the votes. Yeah, no, um, that, and that's a fair that, point. That there's the you're not in charge. Yeah, well, you know, in other immigration news, uh, arrests at the U.S. southern border. Well, well, they're continuing at extremely high levels. In May, we just heard report that border agents arrested more than 50,000 people, and that's the third month in a row of over 50,000 arrests. And that's also the highest level since President Trump took office, and it reportedly has him extremely upset at officials who he believes aren't doing enough to stop the flow of undocumented immigrants into the United States. And a large part of this increase is coming from families in uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras who who are, uh, you know, trying to get away from gang violence and seeking right. asylum here in the, the U.S. so-called caravan that has been, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean, if you take a look at some of the stats, uh, the U.N. says that El Salvador has by far the highest murder rate in the world. It's 83 per 100,000. Uh, Honduras is number two at around 57 per 100,000. And just to give folks a, a, kind of a metric for comparison, the rate in the U.S. is 5.35 per 100,000. So that's, you know, pretty significant here. Uh, these are dangerous places. And that, you know, that journey, that caravan, as you talked about, that Central American refugees take to the U.S., it typically takes around a month and so it's certainly possible that these harsher U.S. policies, which are not quite that old or right around that old, including the uh, the recent and very controversial policy to separate children from their families, that may not have had time yet to have an impact on the refugee flow, I think. So, you know, Jay, we haven't yet talked about the new family separation and zero tolerance policies, but with these numbers coming out and being reported this week, it seems like a good point to get into that. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask you what you think the justification for these policies are and if you agree that they're the right way to go. Well, I think the justification is that this has been – this is the statutory law, right, that that folks who, who cross illegal would be arrested, would be held in custody. Uh also, you've got a situation where um, with people coming across who are undocumented, who have kids with them, uh, in many cases, it's families. In many cases, it's parents taking their kids. In other cases, it's not. Uh, it's, it's traffickers. It's, it's bad people. Uh, and I think there is an interest uh, in protecting kids who are, are being brought here uh, by people who, who might not have the best intentions. Um, uh, you know the other the other thing is is look if if we're going to have this this system where we actually apprehend and, and hold people uh, for for crossing the border illegally and and I think you know look most e e even if you're not an immigration hawk I, I think you'd have to to say this is this is a problem you can't just let everyone flow in um, this you know this this is not an irrational policy now now there may be better ways to handle it. Um, in terms of, you know, can, can we figure out if, if, you know, people provide proof that they're, they're the actual parent and these are the, their kids and, uh, can we put them in, in, uh, more humane conditions and the parents aren't necessarily being incarcerated. Um, but the, I think that's, it's, it's been exacerbated because of, because of this recent wave, uh, coming, coming in that we haven't seen, um. You know, it, again, it's a result of so much of the violence in Central America, uh, much less so than anything that's that's going on in Mexico. Yeah, you know, a couple points on that. N number one, it seems to me, uh, in part of a larger trend with Trump policies, where a policy is announced without the actual infrastructure in place to be able to roll it out well. And so I think, you know, we certainly knew that this, this influx was there, but the president's a very impatient guy. He wanted this right away. And even if you accept the rationale of the zero tolerance and family separation policies, which I know some on the left are saying it's because uh, Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions, you know, hate brown they people. They hate children. Yeah. I, you know, I, I disagree with that. At least I, I'm not ready to accept that. I think it's more likely the simpler explanation is that they think by being very harsh, the message is going to get back to folks who are trying, saying don't even bother 
because it's not going to happen. I think right. that's kind of, and, and so I'll, I'll accept that. And there are certainly some people who I respect who have that view. I disagree with it, but because I feel that fundamentally, I think we can and we should be more open to amnesty claims from people who are fleeing the sort of violence these folks are feeling. I think that's in the, the, the highest standards of what America right. is about. And not only that, but I think that we can definitely absorb these extra workers and that if we give them some sort of official status, not only are they better protected from exploitation, which is a great thing, but also they can more easily become a productive part of our society. And, and that, you know, the, the business community certainly says we need these folks in our economy and, and we can welcome more of them. And I think we should, you know, we average just to, to big picture it, uh, we average around a million or so legal immigrants every year. And our data on illegal immigrants by year isn't that readily available for understandable reasons, right? But estimates estimates of the overall illegal immigrant population are available over time. And they've been steady at around 11 million or so, give or take a few hundred thousand, for the last decade or so. So I mean, in a country of, what, 327 plus million people, I think that we're just looking at this, I would argue, in an entirely wrong-headed way. And I think we should totally reverse our policies to say, let's make this radically more welcoming and open and go with – that would be my preferred policy. And, of course, that's anathema you're not, you're to not the going right. Like, you're not going open borders no, like not, trade, no, right? no, no, no. I'm not saying open borders, obviously. I'm, but I'm saying that we could open up the system a lot more. We could take in a lot more refugees. We could take in a lot more immigrants. And I think it would be good for the country and, and good for those folks. And I'm you know disheartened that there's just not much support, not any support on the right for that. And not maybe as much support as I would like to see on the left for that as well. Well, you know, here's an important, you're, you're not wrong uh, on a whole Thank lot of you. that. <laughs> um, there's w- one point I would say where, where I, I would want to draw a distinction, and that is between uh, there, is, there is a process for people coming here who are seeking amnesty uh, versus uh, people who are arrested for illegal border crossings. Uh, and, and again, that's, that's, that's two different processes, and I agree with you that that look, if if people are, we ought to be generous in in granting uh, um, uh, amnesty protection uh, for those who are have been oppressed, um, uh, pushed out of their country by war, natural disaster, etc. Although you can go back to sort of remember the you know we still have the people here from the Guatemalan earthquake <laughs> twenty years ago. Um, we're still waiting for things to get get a little better. Um, so, so there's there's two things going on there. I mean, and then I would say the one group of folks who show up and say we are uh, uh, deserving of amnesty because of of political repression, uh, danger in our country, uh, we'd like to go through that process. That's one thing, as opposed to people who are just crossing illegally and and then being arrested. Um, but what you say as far as uh, having immigrants come into the country, yeah, we have more jobs job openings right now than we have people to fill them. Yeah. Um, and, well, and to me, even more than the economic argument, and the economic argument, I think, is the one that has the best chance of you know getting some bipartisan support. But but for me, it's more of a I don't know what you call it. A, a, I hate to use the word moral, but kind of a, it's a mindset argument in that I, I see these people who want to come to the United States to have a better life. I, my mindset, my my default, I guess, is welcome. Uh, Come on in, be part of this great thing that we're doing. We we welcome you. We want you to be part of the this incredible society, this thing we've built up. And I feel like there are far too many people who, for a lot of reasons, some of them understandable, are saying, This is our country and you folks stay out. We don't we don't want you. We don't need you. You're not like us. And we just rather you just stick in your own place. And that's just fundamentally just anathema to me, at least. Yeah. No, and, and to me also. And, and but here's and this is some of and Mike, you know, this but a lot of our listeners might not, um, you know, back in college, I actually spent a couple summers um, teaching English as a second language to immigrants. Uh, I also worked with an agency that helped to resettle uh, uh, immigrants um, some some immigrants who fled rather rather quickly from Eastern uh, Europe and the Soviet Union 
And, you know, so much of my experience in working with those people are that these these folks are are perhaps some of the greatest Americans and and really uh, carry what what we see uh, the, the right vision of America to be. Uh, and that is I'm going to go there. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make this a better place. And that is true of, of so many of these these folks who who came here. Uh, through tremendous difficulties, and also because of the places they're from, have tremendous appreciation for both the the political freedoms here and the economic opportunities here. Uh, I was once uh, at a uh, event where um, uh, former uh, uh, UN uh, uh, oh um, uh, ambassador, yes, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick. Uh, made the point that that one of the great benefits we get from from refugees from immigrants is sort of this refreshing of of the American dream of this of of you know this reappreciation. So I am I am with you 100% on that. Uh, the other thing though that I I think and and I also agree that I I I think it's terrible and un-American to have this idea of we don't want these people because they're not like us. Uh, but there's there's another argument that is a legitimate one, and that is if we're going to be a country of, of laws, we have to enforce those laws. And we can't just be open borders, and we've got to have a system. Uh, and, and again, I, I think that's just where the, the holdup has been. If we can create some sort of a, uh, a system where people say, I'm here, I want to follow the rules, I want to get a job. Uh, I want to contribute, uh, then then welcome. But the problem is, if we have people who aren't following the rules, yeah, no, that that's yeah. in, that's entirely fair. And, and of course, that's kind of why we got into this current situation in a way because because there's not the political will to change the laws. What the Obama administration decided to do was basically to stretch the idea of of prosecutorial, pro, prosecutorial right. discretion. We're just not going to enforce past, them. Yeah, past any sort of, I, I would argue, reasonable bounds. And, and that's, that's something that maybe to the conservative mindset, most people don't don't get. But for a lot of people, it, it, it really just, it just grates on them. Of, what do you mean you're just not going to enforce the law? Will you enforce it? You know, if, if I tried to you know, uh, cross over uh, illegally to, uh, uh, you know, some other country, they'd enforce the law against me. Uh, I think that's that's the the problem. There's that then that disconnect with a lot of conservatives. And I'm not going to say there aren't people who are sort of xenophobes who just say that no, we don't want them because they're not like us. But I think there's a significant amount of, of, uh, of folks uh, who, who will simply see this as this is law and order issue, and, and we need to have a process. Right. And, and you're obviously distinguishing between the, the people who see that as a process issue and, and those people who say see that as a – use that argument as a cover for their, their yeah. xenophobia oh, yeah. or racism or things like that. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, uh, there's one story I wanted to get into. I don't want to go into it in great depth, but I at least wanted to hit it. I know we're running a little long, but the, I, we have to talk a little bit, I think, about pardons, not just President Trump's pardon of – uh, Alice Marie Johnson, who was championed by uh, commutation, yeah, oh, commutation. Sorry, by uh, you know a uh, celebrity and a recent Oval Office visitor, Kim Kardashian. But uh, uh, also, President Trump's tweet this week. Uh, let's see, uh, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon, which he wrote in all caps for some reason uh, myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? Um, so. A couple of things here. First off, I wanted to say on the Johnson pardon, it seems to me to be a reasonable pardon reading about her case and so forth, you know, nonviolent drug-related offense. She served 20-plus years, that sort of thing. My problem with it isn't the pardon per se. It's this idea that when you go against this process that, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are just as worthy, if not more worthy, which is why we have a process. And what do we do for people who Kim Kardashian doesn't? Uh, champion, you know those those people are out of luck, and that that's why I think I have a problem with this, which is not to say anything against you know jo- Johnson's case. Uh, uh, secondly, as to the presidential pardon thing, uh, I think he's right actually on this. I you know I look back to the Constitution and it says he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses offenses are against the United States. And par- pardons is in all caps in the Constitution. It, it, it is, but it, it, well, it's it's capitalized, <laughs> but not in all caps. But that was, of course, that that 18th century uh, interesting punctuation and capitalization they used. But anyway, except in cases cases of impeachment. So the letter of the constitutional law doesn't say anything about except pardoning himself or anything like that. So if you are a textualist kind of person. 
you would say, well, yeah, he's right. Now, others have pointed out that longstanding legal principle that no one should be a judge in his own case. But again, if you're just going by the text of the Constitution, he seems to be right. It's never really been an issue. But Jay, your thoughts on on this stuff? Well, first of all, the Alice Johnson uh, commutation and... um on the one hand, you know, here's the thing. Two weeks ago, we noted uh, something, and I don't know whether whether we even talked about it, but you know, it was this Kim Kardashian is visiting the White House to talk about uh, prison reform, and and we all had sort of a good laugh about it. Um, but but you know what? I mean, damned if uh, Kim Kardashian isn't right on this one. Um, and and you know, look, I quite honestly, I. My my opinion of Kim Kardashian is has changed a little bit than than what it was before, not a tremendous amount. Um, but, but, you, but but but, but, remind, but just to remind folks that Joe, I, I don't know if folks would know this, but of course you and I think many conservatives rightly have pointed out these kind of social activist celebrities who pick up a cause of the day because they've seen a documentary or something, and there's a lot of eye rolling at that and so forth. Yeah. And so and maybe and maybe that's but although here's the thing with with this, I mean if whether it was her who picked it out or whether she saw it or whether a publicist or someone came to her with, Hey, this would be great. Uh, I don't know. Um, but that still, it doesn't take away that this was the right thing to do. And, and you're right about that. There's a process that these things go through, but if someone like Alice Johnson isn't being flagged in the process of, Hey, this is, this is, uh, someone you ought to look at commuting the sentence for, uh, and you know she had been th- through that that process before. Then then maybe we ought to reexamine that process. Uh, I agree that that pardons shouldn't be granted on on basis of, of celebrity and so forth. But to the extent that this celebrity uh, uh, you know pardon might uh, create some reevaluation of of what goes on uh, in that pipeline. Um, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's a good thing. I agree, but I don't think that's going to happen because the president just seems to be like, again, with, with so many other things, just kind of scattershot. And now maybe he's going to pardon Muhammad Ali. He's kind of had this little run of, that would be a little run of heavyweight champion of the world. Well, exactly. Pardons, and he likes, yeah, yeah. It's it's whatever he happens to hear that day. And apparently they're saying that now people are trying to get on Fox and friends to make their case because that's the best way to get the presidency here. I mean, again, this is why we have procedures in place but uh the but, but here's the thing but that. the procedures didn't work i mean well, yeah but i uh, disagree again, again barack obama could have commuted uh alice johnson's sentence and they they considered that uh, the, and the they obama. considered and said yeah no thanks but also uh, the obama administration they, well they they commuted an awful lot of nonviolent drug offender sentences and so i i think you know there were people i would bet in sure. the line far ahead of Johnson. In fact, that's what John Kelly and others thought. And so I say, first, deal with those. I don't know that the system's broken. The president gets these recommendations and it's his his decision to act on them or not. So I think it's just the case that the president is not using the system. That's that's perfectly fine. Well, I, I don't I don't know as far as whether that Alice Johnson was brought to his attention before uh, Kim Kardashian or not. Uh, that's that's something that we just don't know. But um, I, I think regardless, this is a good thing. I am, I am also, you know, in many ways, I shouldn't say many ways, but depart from what people think of as, as Republican orthodoxy on, uh, on a prison and, uh, uh justice issues. Uh, and, and, um, uh, so I look, I think we ought to take a, take a good hard look on, uh, uh, on these, at these nonviolent offenders. And maybe this ought to put uh, the president or perhaps someone in Congress to say, we ought to have a a commission to take a look at this and uh, make sure that the Justice Department is properly vetting these and these are properly getting before the president. On the on the on the constitutional issue um, uh, of the, can the president pardon himself? I I agree. I think you're I think you're right. Um, I think you probably can. Uh, to me, I, I I think and many many famous constitutional scholars agree with me. <laughs> Uh, no, and who's more yeah, deserving yeah, of a pardon than Donald Trump? I'm sure that's yeah, what no, Donald yeah, Trump yeah, yeah, is. Listen, the, the remedy for criminal or inappropriate acts uh, while you are the president is impeachment, uh, and and that is the the sole remedy. Um, I think there's a question: Can you be prosecuted for something uh, after you're out of office? Um, uh, that you did in office, uh, to me, I think that's that's probably an open question. We've never really encountered it. Uh, but the Constitution seems pretty clear that he can pardon himself, except he can't unimpeach himself. 
Uh, so, well, I, I would think that I would think that President Pence would uh, go ahead and pardon Donald Trump, just like uh, President Ford did of Richard Nixon, if it we'll came see. to that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll see. Anyway, um, you know that that kind of pushes up right, right up against our uh, past our limits. But the, before we uh, close the show, I wanted to let everyone know that if you have not yet had your fill. Of, of Jay and of me. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to be doing our special supporters exclusive uh, Politics Guys uh, after show, whatever. And this week, I, I'm thinking we'll talk about that pseudo Super Bowl rally at the White House uh, with the, the No Eagles fans. Um, maybe the emergence of uh, China, if you heard that mysterious illness that diplomats in the U.S. were getting in Cuba. That's kind of a weird thing. And also maybe uh, EPA Chief Scott Pruitt's ethics issues, which now uh, encompass, let me see, Chick-fil-A franchises, used Trump Hotel mattresses, Ritz-Carlton moisturizer, and fancy fountain pens. It gets weirder all the time. So uh, if you're interested, uh, again, that's for that's for our supporters as a special little thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. We do hope you liked what you heard. And, of course, your support is what keeps us going, and we truly appreciate it. You know how to, you know how to support us if you want, politicsguys.com slash support, or just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or the PayPal links. And of course, subscribing to the show and sharing episodes helps out a lot. Word of mouth is really the best advertising. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also is really helpful. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, mail at politicsguys.com, or if you'd rather do it on Facebook, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.